In our study of Bible prophecy, we'll now reconstruct the sequence of events in the Tribulation using the Book of Revelation as our guide, as it's our main source of information for this unique time. After chapters 2 and 3, with its prophetic overview of the church age, in chapter 4 verse 1, John is taken to heaven and told he'd be shown the things which must take place after this, that is, after the church age. And so, Revelation 4 to 18 is a detailed description of the tribulation. Now, there are three main purposes of the tribulation. The first purpose is to end wickedness and wicked ones. Evil is allowed to come to its fullness so that it can be revealed and judged. It's the day of the Lord, a time of worldwide judgment. As Isaiah 13:9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the earth desolate, and he'll destroy the sinners from it. By the end of the seven years, God will have fully separated the righteous from the wicked and judged all the evil ones on the earth. Often people ask, why doesn't God intervene and stop evil? Well, in the tribulation he will. This is where God's kingdom forcibly comes into confrontation with the kingdoms of this world. The second purpose of the tribulation is to bring a worldwide soul harvest. In context, Matthew 24:14 refers to evangelism in the tribulation. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This evangelism will be spearheaded by the two witnesses and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. In the midst of all the judgments, many will repent and be saved. Often when everything's comfortable, people forget God. But when everything is shaken around them, many realize they need God. The third purpose of the tribulation is the salvation of Israel. Romans 11.25 says that after the fullness of the church age harvest has come in, all Israel will be saved in the tribulation. The terrible troubles of the tribulation will break the stubborn unbelief and pride of Israel so that by its end all Israel will receive Jesus as her Messiah, as her King, and enter the new covenant and be saved. She'll also call on the name of the Lord to save her from those trying to destroy her at Armageddon. This faith will qualify her to possess the promised messianic kingdom. Daniel 12.7 says, He swore by him who lives forever that it, the great tribulation, shall be for a time, times and half a time, that's three and a half years, and when the power of the holy people has been completely broken, all these things shall be finished. It will be a combination of things that will bring Israel to faith. First, the rapture will be a major sign confirming the truth of the New Testament. Second, the spectacular ministry of the two witnesses who will preach Jesus as the Messiah with their death and resurrection then giving Israel a third sign of Jonah. The third thing that will convince Israel that Jesus is the Messiah is the way that all the New Testament prophecies of the tribulation will be coming to pass before their eyes. The fourth factor is that the great affliction of Israel will cause them to stop depending on themselves and instead turn to God. Fifth, God also will lift the judicial blindness that has been on Israel since her rejection of Christ. Revelation 4 and 5 shows heaven just before the start of the tribulation. In chapter 4 verse 1, John isn't just taken to heaven, but he's transported into the future so that he was an actual eyewitness of what happens. He saw the church already in heaven, represented by the 24 elders. Before the tribulation, judgments begin. And I think he met himself, because John is surely one of the 24 elders. So time travel is in the Bible.
Revelation 5 contains the key to understand the nature of the tribulation. This key is the opening of the scroll or book with seven seals. In, cha in chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, we read, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Everything points to the fact that this book is the title deed of the earth. The dramatic nature of these verses tell us that this book is of immense importance, and if no one can be found worthy to open it, the consequences would be tragic. However, there is one who is qualified to open it. His worthiness is based on first, who he is, and second, what he's done. First, he's the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, a man born into the tribe of Judah and the royal house of David, who's the rightful king of the earth according to the Davidic covenant. Moreover, being the root or origin of David, he's also God, so he's the God-man Messiah. So as the true king, only he has the right to open this book. Therefore, the book must be the document that enshrines and proves his legal right to possess and rule the earth. If none could be found to open it, no one would have the legal basis to restore the earth and deliver it from evil. Secondly, he's also done something that uniquely qualifies him to open the book. He's overcome. And this is explained further in the next verses, verse 6 and 7. And I saw before the throne a lamb standing, having been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he turns to see this lion, John sees a lamb who'd been slain but was now risen again, possessing all authority, that's the seven horns, and all power, that's the sevenfold spirit of God. As he comes to the throne and takes the book, this signifies that he's about to assert his authority over the earth. In response, heaven sings in verse 9 and 10, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The lion is worthy, you see, to open the book and to reign, because he was the lamb who was slain, and by his blood he's purchased the whole earth, including all its people. He's overcome because the earth and its inhabitants had come under the power of the evil one, but he has paid the price to redeem them and take them back from the hand of the enemy. By his death and resurrection, the lamb has overcome, and so he's worthy to rule as the lion. By redeeming the earth and all who dwell in it with his blood, he's now its rightful owner. Therefore, he alone has the right to sit as the lion on David's throne and reign over the earth and have his redeemed people reign with him. The praises in Revelation 4, 9 and 10 declare that because he's the Redeemer, he is worthy to open the book and to reign on earth as king over a whole kingdom of priests. The praises in verse 12 to 14 also confirm this very same thing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, to rule, and riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory and blessing. And then, to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory and dominion forever and ever. Clearly, the opening of the book has to do with his asserting his legal right to possess and rule the earth. And all heaven is declaring that he's worthy to do this because he has redeemed the earth.
To shed extra light on what's happening here, it helps to know some background from the Jewish law of redemption. Every family had a piece of the promised land. If they got into debt, they may have had to sell off their land and so lose possession of it. In that case, a relative could redeem it for them to keep it in the family. To redeem means to purchase back. And this one was called a kinsman redeemer. Sometimes they even had to sell themselves off as slaves, but they could still be redeemed by a redeemer with the necessary wealth. When the kinsman redeemer purchased back the land, two title deeds were drawn up that proved his ownership and right to possess and rule over the land. One was kept open for anyone to see, and the other was sealed and stored in a safe place by the owner. When Jeremiah bought some land in chapter 32, verse 6 to 13, he followed this very procedure. So, if anyone questioned the ownership, claiming that the open copy had been tampered with, they could unseal the sealed book and verify who was the true owner. Therefore, whenever there were people occupying that land and opposing the Redeemer's return to take charge of it, he'd first have to prove his right to possess the land, and then he could forcefully evict anyone who was there unlawfully, or who rejected his authority. Thus, the first act of the true owner, as he returns to the land that he'd purchased to take possession of it, was to open the sealed title deed. This established his authority to act, releasing him to immediately exert his power to destroy their base of operation and reclaim his inheritance. Sometimes a redeemer purchased the land, but he couldn't immediately take possession, and so it might remain in the hands of unlawful tenants for a long time, and they might even be unwilling to relinquish control. Eventually, the Redeemer must come and take possession of his land and evict them. Since they disputed his ownership as his first act of forcibly taking back the land, he'd bring forth the seal title deed, break its seals and read out its contents, thus demonstrating his right to take control of the land he'd previously purchased. And this is exactly what's happening in Revelation 5 and 6 with the opening of the seven seals. The Bible is the open book that tells us that Christ is the Redeemer and rightful King of the earth, the Son of David, who will sit on David's throne. His worthiness to do this is derived from the fact that he's purchased the earth and all who dwell in it with his blood. The closed book has been kept sealed in heaven, and only Christ, the true owner, has the right to open it to prove his right to judge and rule. You see, the earth is owned by God, but it was leased to man as the tenant possessor. But through sin, the first Adam delivered his authority to Satan, lost his dominion over the earth, and was sold into slavery to sin. Thus man allowed God's enemy to take control over the earth. The only solution was for a kinsman redeemer who was willing and able to pay the price to redeem the earth and redeem man from slavery, and so restore man's dominion on the earth. That's why Jesus had to become a man, the second Adam, to be our kinsman redeemer. With his precious blood, he not only purchased man from the hand of sin and Satan, but also redeemed the earth, so that man's possession of the earth and dominion over it could be restored. So when Jesus died on the cross, he not only paid for our salvation, but he also laid the basis for man's dominion to be restored, so that now God's kingdom can be established on the earth through the second Adam. That's why Jesus could say, all authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. He has the right to take possession of the earth and rule over it and evict any illegal tenants, whether Satan, demons or unbelievers. 
As the Redeemer, Possessor, and rightful ruler of the earth, Jesus alone possesses the title deed and has the authority to take possession of the earth by force. He could have done that at any time, but in God's plan, he had to wait 2,000 years before enforcing his authority to evict Satan and the wicked and take possession of the earth. And that's exactly what he does in the tribulation. As he does that, the first thing he must do is establish his legal right to judge and rule the earth. So the act of opening the title deed is Christ asserting his right of dominion and starting to forcibly take possession of the earth. It's the moment he begins to enforce his authority as judge and king. It signifies that he's now moving in judgment against his enemies. That's why, as soon as he breaks a seal in heaven, judgments are released on the earth. So Revelation 5 provides the basis for all the tribulation judgments in Revelation 6 to 19. From the way Revelation is written, it's clear that what's released on the earth in the tribulation is initiated from heaven. For as each seal is opened and each trumpet blown in heaven, something happens on earth as a result. Thus from Revelation 5 onwards, we're in the day of the Lord the time of his wrath, when the Lamb declares war on the world system and is moving in judgment against it. And he will continue to do this until he completes this work at his second coming. As the Redeemer opens this book with seven seals in heaven, he initiates all the judgments of the tribulation on the earth that are described in Revelation 6 to 19. That's why the whole tribulation, not just the second half or its last few days, all of it is a time of divine judgment. By the end of the seven years, he'll have totally taken possession of the earth and evicted his enemies. He has the power to do it in a day, but he wants to give a chance for as many as possible to repent, so he spreads it over seven years. So, the breaking of seven seals in heaven releases all the judgments of the tribulation on the earth as Christ forcibly takes possession of every part of the earth, every part of the world system. The breaking of each seal releases him to immediately initiate corresponding judgments. Thus, as each seal is broken, part of the title deed is revealed, which confirms his authority over a different realm of the world system. Having established this authority, he immediately uses it to start loosing judgments on that realm. First, he pulls the plug on that realm by withdrawing his re restraining and sustaining grace. Just as a landlord evicting illegal tenants might start by stopping the gas, electricity and water supplies. He later also sends direct judgments, bombarding the earth. In Revelation 6, he opens the first six seals in quick succession, right at the start of the tribulation, which initiate what Jesus called the beginning of the birth pains on the earth in Matthew 24:7, And these birth pains start at once and continue to intensify until the birth of the kingdom at the end of the tribulation, just like birth pains. What happens under the six seals in Revelation 6 agrees perfectly with Jesus' description of the birth pains in Matthew 24, including their order. It's important to realize that the seals are not one-off events, but judgments on a specific realm that continue through the whole tribulation, just like birth pains. As the seal is opened, so that realm starts to unravel and descend into chaos as the Lord withdraws his hand of blessing, restraint and protection. We've no idea how much God sustains the world and protects it from the full chaotic effects of its evil. But in the tribulation, it will find out as it gradually starts to fall apart without God's grace. 
The first realm is the political realm. So as the first seal is broken, God's hand of restraint is removed and the rider on the white horse is released in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. This is the Antichrist, released to conquer the world. At the end, in Revelation 19, he'll be defeated by another rider on a white horse, Christ. This agrees with 2 Thessalonians 2, which says God is restraining the Antichrist through the church right now, so we can't be manifested until his time. It says the day of the Lord will begin with the departure of the church, followed by the revelation of the Antichrist. So the first thing that must happen in the tribulation is the loosing of the Antichrist into prominence on the world stage. Soon after this, he, he will reveal himself by making a treaty covenant with Israel. His political activity and dominance will continue and increase throughout the tribulation. Now the second realm is the international realm. So as the second seal is broken, God removes his peace from the earth by releasing the rider on the red horse, symbolizing blood. That's in Revelation 6 verse 3 and 4. The result is that the world is plunged into worldwide conflict, much of it triggered by the first rider, the Antichrist. This matches Jesus' words, nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. The third realm is the financial realm. So as the third seal is broken, God's grace is removed from the financial systems, symbolized by the release of the black horse, resulting in worldwide famines, which continue throughout the tribulation. And that's in Revelation 6, 5 and 6. Famine usually follows war, so it makes sense that worldwide famine follows world war. This also agrees with Matthew 24, 7, where the next birth pain after World War is worldwide famine. This economic chaos will pave the way for the mark of the beast. The fourth realm is the realm of man's physical existence, so the breaking of the fourth seal reveals a massive loss of life through the rider on the pale green horse. Even one quarter of mankind through famine, war and especially disease, carried by the beasts of the earth, which include insects, bacteria and viruses. That's in Revelation 6, 7 and 8. Such loss of life in only a few years is on a far greater scale than the world's ever seen. Disease, of course, normally follows war and famine. This again agrees with Matthew 24:7, which describes the next birth pain as pestilences in various places. As each seal is opened, Christ reveals his dominion over that realm, showing what life is like without his grace. The world says it doesn't want him, so now he says, OK, have it your way. The fifth realm is the moral realm. So the breaking of the fifth seal reveals the great release of moral evil that will take place in the tribulation, culminating in great persecution and martyrdom of the saints, and that's Revelation 6, 9-11. John sees martyrs in heaven from the first part of the tribulation who are told to wait until their full number had been killed. In Revelation 7, we see a greater number of martyrs from the great tribulation. This corresponds perfectly to the next birth pain in Matthew 24, 9-12, where Jesus said, Lawlessness will abound, and many will be persecuted and killed for his sake. The sixth realm is the realm of nature. So as the sixth seal is broken, the result is earthquakes and other convulsions of nature, even signs in the heavens. This corresponds to the birth pain of earthquakes in various places in Matthew 24, 7, and signs from heaven in Luke 21, 11.
As with all the seals, these disturbances of nature will continue and intensify throughout the tribulation until the second coming, when they reach their climax. And the description in Revelation 6, 12-17 of the result of the sixth seal is the upheavals of nature in the days just before the second coming. Understanding the nature of the seals explains why these verses seem to be out of place chronologically. Although the first six seals are broken in quick succession, there's a delay before the seventh seal in Revelation 8.1. Revelation 7 describes what happens during this time and explains why there's an interlude now. Revelation 7.2 and 3 it says, He cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, Don't harm the earth, sea or trees, until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The breaking of the seventh seal releases the seven trumpet judgments, and the four angels in this verse are assigned to blow the first four trumpets, which will bring great devastation on the earth. God has a special mission for a group of his servants, and so he holds these tr judgments back until he's sealed them. The sealing represents God's protection over these men and anointing as evangelists. They're identified in Revelation 7, 4-8 as 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. The fact they're identified by their Jewish ethnicity rather than as part of the church confirms that the church has been raptured now and that in the tribulation God has turned back to Israel to be his anointed representatives. This is why there's no mention of the church on earth in Revelation 6 to 18. Soon after the rapture, these 144 will suddenly get saved as they realize the New Testament is true. Many of them will be like the Apostle Paul, Orthodox Jews, who know the Bible well, who quickly become powerful for God when they receive Jesus as Messiah. They'll spearhead the evangelism in the tribulation, resulting in multitudes getting saved. John is shown this great soul harvest in Revelation 7, 9 to 17. Many of these will be martyred in the great tribulation when they refuse to take the mark of the beast. So they're seen standing before the throne in heaven and are described as having been saved out of the great tribulation in verse 14. Revelation 7 confirms that in the midst of all the judgments, one of God's main purposes for the tribulation is a great soul harvest of the nations, agreeing with what Jesus said in Matthew 24:14 that the gospel must be preached to all nations, and then the end, the second coming, would come. The seventh seal, then, is broken in Revelation 8:1, probably a few months into the tribulation. At this point, there's a half hour of silence in heaven. This speaks of ominous anticipation of an escalation in judgment. My personal uh, opinion is that it's triggered by the Antichrist covenant. The first six seals saw God remove his hand of grace from different realms. But according to Revelation 8, 1 and 2, the seventh seal brings direct judgments from God, bombardments from heaven, released by the blowing of the seven trumpets in succession. So the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. Unlike the seal judgments that continue throughout the tribulation, the trumpets are one-off special judgments which just last for a limited time until the next trumpet. The blowing of the first six trumpets is described in Revelation 8 and 9, resulting in the destruction of different areas of the earth. The first destroys a third of all vegetation. The second causes a meteorite to fall into the sea, turning a third of all seas to blood and killing a third of all sea life. The third trumpet releases another meteorite that poisons a third of all fresh water. The fourth results in a third of all sunlight being lost, probably because of atmospheric contamination from these impacts. 
The last three trumpets are even worse because they're introduced as three woes in Revelation 8.13. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So the fifth trumpet is also the first woe. That's in Revelation 9, 1-11. And this is an army of locust-like demons released from the bottomless pit, which torment men for five months. Revelation 9, 12 demonstrates the chronological nature of this whole account. It says, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. The sixth trumpet is the second woe. And that's in Revelation 9, 13-21. Four fallen angels are released who lead another demonic army who are allowed to kill a third of mankind. Now, one quarter of mankind died under the fourth seal, and now a third are killed under the sixth trumpet. So this is at least a half of the world's population dead in just a few years. We're not just talking about thousands or millions, but billions. It'll be way beyond the worst that the world's ever seen. At this point we come to the middle of the tribulation, when a number of important events happen involving all the major characters of the tribulation. These events and characters are described in Revelation 10-13. to It's at this time that the seventh trumpet is blown, initiating the Great Tribulation. Let's now summarize the main events at mid-tribulation. First, the Antichrist will start showing his true colors, invading the Middle East, including Israel, and that's in Daniel 9, 36-45. Second, he takes over the Temple Mount, killing the two witnesses who've ministered there for three and a half years. That's in Revelation 11. And their dead bodies are left unburied as the nations rejoice over their death. Third, the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel by stopping their temple worship. That's in Daniel 9:27. Fourth, in the sight of all the nations who are watching by TV, God raises the two witnesses from the dead after three and a half days, and they ascend to heaven, and a great earthquake hits Jerusalem. That's in Revelation 11. Fifth, the Antichrist desecrates the temple by erecting an image of himself, the image of the beast, in the holy place. And that's in, referred to in Revelation 13, verse 14 and 15. This is the abomination of desolation, and this is when Antichrist sits in the temple, declaring himself as God. 6. Then in response, the seventh trumpet is blown in Revelation 11.15. Thus, it's called the abomination of desolation because it brings desolating judgments down on Antichrist's kingdom. 7. Upon seeing the abomination, the believing remnant of Israel, pictured by the woman who brought forth Christ in Revelation 12, flees to the wilderness of Jordan, where God keeps her safe for three and a half years. This same event is described by Jesus in Matthew 24, who says the abomination marks the start of the Great Tribulation. 8. At this time, Israel's in special peril, and the archangel Michael rises up to protect her. That's in Daniel 12.1. There's war in the first heaven, the atmosphere, and Michael and his angels cast Satan and his angels down to the earth's surface, and that's in Revelation 12. 9. In the time leading up to mid-tribulation, Antichrist is the leader over ten kingdoms, but at mid-tribulation, these ten kings fully submit their authority to him. 10. The Antichrist and these ten kings destroy the apostate religion, described as a harlot, who'd ridden the political beast in the first half of the tribulation. That's described in Revelation 17. So from now on, the only religion allowed is the worship of the beast, the Antichrist. 11. The Antichrist becomes world dictator for the last three and a half years. That's in Revelation 13. And he's helped by the false prophet who does miracles 
in his name, and he sets up the mark of the beast. And that's all in Revelation 13.